invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. And before I read this, let me pray. Father, we're reminded of, of the words of the Apostle Peter when he was speaking with Jesus. He said, to whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Father, we come to you and to your word, uh, your inspired, inerrant, infallible, holy word. These are the words of eternal life, and we pray that by your spirit, you would help us to understand your word, help us to apply it to our lives, help us to see, see the immediate relevance of Christ's sufferings and now his exaltation to our daily lives as followers of Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. First Peter chapter 3, our, our verses for tonight are verses 8 through 22. By the way, tonight uh, we won't have someone share a testimony, but at the end of the, um, after our final song, we will have some time for Q&A. So um, jot down your questions. It's also time for comments things that stood out to you as you listened. So take note, this is a good passage for some questions at the end. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 22. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame." For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few... That is, eight persons were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Many people think that Christians are dangerous to society. 
One Christian writes, It has become routine to hear evangelical Christians decried as representing a threat to civil society. It has become routine to hear evangelical Christians decried as representing a threat to civil society. Christians, a threat to society. Many people view us as immoral, seditious, bigoted, hateful. Are you socially dangerous? Many people think so. Of course, this is not new. The situation of our day is similar to that of Peter's day. In the first century, ordinary Christians were viewed as being dangerous to society. In their day, like ours, Christians suffered for doing good. As we turn to these verses in 1 Peter, we find that God's word is just as relevant to us today as it was to God's people 2,000 years ago. When others view you as a threat to civil society, how should you respond? What should you do when you suffer for doing good? The main point of tonight's sermon which I believe is the main point of this text, is this. Live with character and live with confidence because Christ also suffered but is now exalted. In this passage, there are three main sections, and I will use three C words to capture what the Word of God says. In your suffering, live with character. And in your suffering, live with confidence. Why? Because Christ also suffered, but is now exalted. That's where we're going. So first, character. The Christian's character in suffering. The first section is verses 8 through 12. Peter begins, Finally, all of you. In previous verses, Peter gave instructions on how to live as Christian citizens, servants, wives, and husbands. Now he gives instructions to all of us, on how to live as members of the church. In verse 8, notice how Peter speaks of brotherly love. Brotherly love. He's thinking about how Christians should relate to one another. He writes, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. What do you think? Are these things really that important? After all, there are so many big issues to consider as we live as Christians in this world. Surely there are more pressing matters than love. I put it this way to drive home a point. Love is really that important. As you all know, Jesus described loving one another as the second greatest commandment. The second, not the tenth, not the twentieth. Brotherly love is that important to Jesus that means it should be that important to us, to you. It's also how the world will know that we are Christians. Do you want to engage your culture? Carl Truman, a Christian professor at Grove City College, writes in his book, Strange New World, the culture is most dramatically engaged by, and I wonder how you would finish that sentence, the culture is most dramatically engaged by, here's what he says, by the church presenting it with another culture, another form of community, 
rooted in her liturgical worship practices and manifested in the loving community that exists both in and beyond the worship service. Do you want to engage your culture? If so, what this Christian historian and thinker is saying is, love your church. Do you want to engage the culture? Love your church. Have the character described in this verse. Have unity of mind and a humble mind. Have sympathy and a tender heart. Have brotherly love. Now, the spirit of the resurrected Christ dwells within you, and he is committed to your sanctification. Compared to a year ago, how are you growing in these qualities? How is your life different compared to six months ago or even a month ago, last week? God is at work, and I encourage you to give thanks to God for his good work in your life. Where is more work needed? To paraphrase the Puritan Thomas Watson, Every man complains that his circumstances aren't better, but he seldom complains that his heart isn't better. How does your heart need to change? Imagine what it might look like for you to grow in these very qualities. How do you need to mature in loving your brothers and sisters in Christ at proclamation? How can you do these very things in the context of this local One thing you must not do is repay evil for evil. In verse 9, it may be that Peter shifts his primary focus from the church to the world. Do not repay evil for evil. Maybe he's thinking now about the world. Regardless, the reality is that this verse applies on Sunday mornings or Sunday evenings, just like it applies on Monday mornings or any other day of the week. When anyone sins against you, When anyone sins against you, how should you respond? Peter writes, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. I don't need to tell you, but I will anyway. This is so countercultural. This is so countercultural. The world says, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You stab my back, I'll stab yours. But that's not the way of the kingdom of God. It's not. Jesus said, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Bless. Fellow Christians, to this we are called. Ask God to show his favor to those who sin against you. Notice, this is not optional. It's not optional for you. If you are a Christian, this is not optional. Peter writes, Bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. That you may obtain a blessing. In other words, do you want to inherit the blessing of eternal life? If so, bless those who sin against you. Peter's not teaching, of course, that we're saved by our works. He has made it abundantly clear in this letter that God saves by grace alone. 
Earlier in the letter, he wrote, according to his great mercy, according to God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. But it's also true, as we see in this letter, that good works are necessary to inherit eternal life. Good works are necessary to inherit eternal life. Let me illustrate. Our combined Sunday school class is studying Pilgrim's Progress. I really enjoyed it this summer. After Christian enters the narrow gate, and after he loses his burden at the cross, what must he do? What must he do? He must walk on the narrow path. He must go on. He must walk till he gets to the celestial city. And when he gets there, will he look back and say, wow, look at how I've earned my salvation. Not in the least. We haven't gotten there, so I'm not exactly sure what he'll say, but I'm confident it will be something like this. As he looks back, he'll say something like, by grace alone, from start to finish. By grace alone. Augustine said, grace alone brings about every good work in us. Grace alone brings about every good work in us. So, think about your life in the kitchen, in the office, on the sidewalk, on social media, in your heart, on the playground. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. On the contrary, bless. Live this way. And Peter says, you will obtain everlasting life. To prove his point, Peter quotes from a portion of Psalm 34. If we were to go back and look, we would learn from the title that David was in exile among the Philistines. He was in exile because someone was persecuting him, Saul, and David refused to repay evil for evil. In this psalm, we learn that God who delivered David will deliver the righteous and repay the wicked. You can count on it. This is who God is. And so Peter writes, quoting from David, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Do you see the point of this first section? The point of verses 8 through 12 is your Christian character in suffering. It's your Christian character. Live this way as the born-again people of God. Second, live with confidence. As we turn to the second section, verses 13 through 17, we find the Christian's confidence in suffering. The word confidence doesn't show up here, but I think it captures the tone and the truths found in this section. When you suffer for doing good, when others view you as a threat to civil society, you need not doubt or be fearful or insecure or worry. Why not? Verse 13 now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for doing good, for what is good? You may be thinking, well, lots of people, Peter, lots of people, lots of people are out to get us. But Peter is speaking in an ultimate sense. 
He's looking down the road. If you are zealous for what is good, no one can ultimately and finally triumph over you because God will vindicate you on the last day. It's similar to Paul's question in Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? Sure, lots of people are against us. But if you remember when Troy preached on that passage, he said, if God is for you, he blows the competition out of the water. There is no competition. He is for you. Who can be against you? In a similar way, Peter is saying, if you are zealous for good, then the last and final and ultimate word belongs to God. To quote Augustine once more, if you love the good, you will suffer no loss because whatever you may lose in this world, you will never lose God, who is the true good. If you love the good, you will suffer no loss because whatever you may lose in this world, you will never lose God, who is the true good. Peter goes on, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. This is the man who once cowered in fear when people asked him if he followed Jesus. Peter said, I do not know this man of whom you speak. He once said that. That's found in the Gospel of Mark. So how can Peter say, have no fear of them? nor be troubled. How can he say that? He can say that because he had set apart Christ as Lord in his heart. In his heart, fear of Christ had driven out fear of man. Peter had witnessed the death and resurrection of Christ and had bowed his knee to the Lord of all. Have no fear of them, he now says, nor be troubled, but in your heart, Set apart Christ as Lord. Honor Christ the Lord as holy. Be absolutely His. You may know the name Oswald Chambers. Uh, he's known for the devotional book, My Utmost for His Highest. I recently read a biography of Chambers, and I think this phrase gets at what Peter's saying. Be absolutely His. Be absolutely His referring to the Lord. In public and in private, in your work and in your play, beginning in your heart and flowing out to all of life, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Do this, Peter says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. We read in the book of Acts about how Peter boldly, boldly proclaimed Christ. You and I, we are not apostles, but we are called to make a defense. And what we say, your defense, is not the only thing that matters. What also matters is how you say it. You might have the right answer, but are you answering in the right way? Peter says, in what you say and in how you say it, have a good conscience. Your moral consciousness should approve of how you live. 
of what you say and how you say it. Unbelievers may not approve, and they will be put to shame on the last day, but your moral consciousness, your conscience should approve. Peter sums up this all in verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Christian, you can live with confidence. It is truly better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Who's there to harm you? You will be blessed. You honor Christ, the Lord, as holy. It's not you, but your enemies who will be put to shame on the last day. It is better to suffer for doing good. But is it? Is it? Why is it not better to repay evil for evil? Why is it not better? Is it worth it to do good to those who hate you? To bless those who curse you? To pray for those who abuse you? If we think, if we stop and slow down and think about that, how do we begin to put into words how hard it is to do that? This is good. This is the way of God. This is the way of the kingdom of God. But this is so hard. This is so hard. Is it better? Peter says, the word of God says, it is. It is better. In your suffering for doing good, live with Christian character and live with Christian confidence because Christ Your Lord and Savior also suffered, but is now exalted. In this third and final section, Peter grounds our character and our confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, admittedly, he says some wild and confusing things in these verses. Who are the spirits in prison? When did Christ preach to them? We'll briefly consider those questions, but I don't want you to miss the forest for the trees. The big picture is the suffering and exaltation of Christ and its immediate relevance to you in your suffering for doing good. So as we dive in, for now, let's skip verses 19 through 21. We'll come back. Let's skip the middle verses and read verses 18 and then 22 together. This really captures the forest the big picture, what Paul, what Peter is driving at. Why is it better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil? Why? Well, listen to Peter's answer. Verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Now verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Friends, this is, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ suffered once for sins, not for his own sins, but for yours and mine. The righteous and blameless Messiah suffered for us, the unrighteous, so that we might be reconciled to God. When he was put to death in the flesh, as you know, Christ didn't repay evil for evil. 
As he hung from the cross, he blessed, saying, Father, forgive them. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus died blessing his enemies. But he was made alive in the Spirit. Better yet, he was made alive by the Spirit. And where has he gone? He's ascended into heaven. He's at the right hand of God. All angels, authorities, and powers have been subjected to him. So the Christ who once suffered for doing good is now exalted and crowned Lord of all. We all heard this good news. We heard the gospel. And God caused us to be born again. As Peter says, we, you, appealed to God for a good conscience. In other words, on the basis of the death and resurrection of Christ, you asked God to cleanse your conscience and to forgive your sins. And he did. He did. And your baptism is a sign and seal of that salvation. You have been saved out of the waters of judgment and have been brought into resurrection life in Christ. Now you follow in his steps. Like him, like Jesus, you suffer for doing good. He's one step ahead of you. He's one step ahead. For him, suffering has already given way to glory. But you, we, his people, will catch up in time. The day is coming when our suffering will also give way to glory. When Christ returns, you too will reign with Christ. So the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus, the good news of his suffering and now exaltation is why you can live with character and why you can live with confidence as you suffer for doing good. This is why. We could say more, and we will in time, but first, let's go back. What about those spirits in prison? When did Christ preach to them? When did he go and proclaim to them? As you can imagine, there are different interpretations, and it would take a lot of time to explain them all and weigh the arguments. Later we can discuss discuss this if you'd like. For our purposes tonight, I will simply share the view that I found to be most convincing. Let's start by rereading these verses. I'll reread verses 19 and 21. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the... From the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Who are the spirits in prison? I think it's most likely that these are fallen angels or demonic spirits. These are the evil beings that Peter mentions, mentions in verse 22. The angels, authorities, and powers who have been subjected to the ascended Christ. When did Christ proclaim to them? 
after his resurrection. In other words, Christ in his resurrection heralded his triumph over all things, including over evil spirits. Peter says that these spirits formerly did not obey. In this verse and a few other places, the Bible teaches that some kind of angelic sin occurred before the flood. What was the nature of this sin? We really don't know for sure. What we do know is that this angelic sin, along with the general wickedness of mankind, was so depraved, it was so dark, that it precipitated the flood. This cataclysmic judgment of God. Like I said earlier, we can come back to this. But what Peter wants you to know is that Christ triumphed over all evil. All evil. Even the darkest, most depraved evil for all of time. When you face hatred and cursing and abuse for the sake of Christ, what Peter wants you to know is that Jesus reigns over it. What evil have you faced in the past? What evil do you face today? What evil do you most fear in the future? Brothers and sisters, we must absorb this truth deep into our hearts. All evil, all evil is subject to Christ. All of it for all of time. He reigns as king over all. In the first century and today, Christians are like Noah. You are like Noah. You are the righteous minority, boldly witnessing to an unbelieving society. As you do so, God is patient. Christ hasn't come yet. God is patient. He wishes that all should reach repentance. But judgment is coming. And on that day, like the eight persons in the ark, you and the rest of God's people will certainly be saved. So, do unbelievers view you as a threat to civil society? If so, it's because Christ was viewed as socially dangerous. So much so that he was crucified. As you follow in his steps, live with Christian character and live with Christian confidence. Christ suffered, but he's now exalted. And one day you will be too. Amen.